0: Uh, Some of you more mature folks will know who this is. Uh, That's Paul Harvey. And he started out as a news columnist, but he became famous as a radio broadcaster, known for his firm staccato delivery and the line, and now for the rest of the story. Well, he adopted this storytelling technique where he would paint a picture, sometimes even give the punchline of the story first. Get your interest so peaked that you would need to know how this all happened. And then he would work backwards and fill in all the blanks for you. Well, I want to start today's passage in a similar way. It's with the punchline first. The title of this series that we're in is called Growing Our Church Family. And today's text is a story of church growth. But to our modern ears, it's a little countercultural how they got there. So here's the punchline. It's Acts two forty seven. it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's church growth. Uh, that's the goal of every church. We, we just had one of our quarterly baptism services a couple weeks ago. Over 30 people were baptized. And it's such an amazing sight with all the kids coming in and the, and the worship happening and these people declaring their allegiance to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like our church just pulsates with energy and encouragement on those days. Why? Well, because there's a sense of this is what it's all about. And so I can only imagine that reaction was multiplied in the the first church in Acts 2. They they were a brand new church, a a movement in its infancy. It was almost like a startup business, like where every day you're like, man, I don't know if this thing's even going to work or not. Will it grow or not? And so here in this passage, we see it working. Day by day, people are getting saved, and the church is growing in size and strength. The question is, well, why? How did it get here? Well, here's our Paul Harvey moment. Here's the rest of the story. I want you to go backwards one verse and see that God was growing the church with new people being saved. Well, why? Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the, the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Okay, so, so they were worshiping in the temple together. They were gathering for meals together. And it says they were praising God, and here's another key phrase. It says that they had gained favor with all the people. Again, why? Why were they meeting together and praising God and gaining favor? We'll look backwards at verse 44. They were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Ah, here we go. They were meeting and praising God and gaining favor because of their radical generosity with one another, but that's not easy to do. So why did they become so generous and so eager to share their lives together? Well, let's go back even further to verse 42. Look at what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so we see, here it is here's the rest of the story they devoted themselves to life in community and so in acts 2 god was growing his church the end of the story says day by day people are getting saved why because of laser light shows because of great music because of great preaching because of great kids and youth ministries because of great coffee and donuts no Because of great facilities? No, 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 no. God was growing His church because His people devoted themselves to walking out their faith together. Did you see that phrase in verse 42? They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to what? Well, doing their faith in community. They were eating together. They were studying together. They were praying together, sharing their stuff together, distributing proceeds together, attending temple together, being awed together, experiencing signs and wonders together. So what did they devote themselves to? Life together. They devoted themselves to a communal approach to their faith. You know your Christian faith is not a Lone Ranger activity, don't you? It's a team sport. You were never meant to do this alone. And so they devoted themselves. That word devoted means they gave themselves to. They abandoned themselves to these things. Unselfishly, they did this in response to the gospel. Everybody took responsibility for, for his or her own life, but not for his or her own advancement. They said, I'm going to take responsibility for me, for you. I'm going to pull my weight for you. I don't want to be the weak link in this chain. So I'm going to assume full responsibility for making sure my life is in conformity with, with the will and the word of God. Nobody else was responsible for their devotion. Notice, each person devoted themselves. Their pastor didn't get devoted for them, their wife didn't get devoted for them, their mom and dad, no. They devoted themselves in response to the gospel and in the context of community, in the context of a group. And so I wanna do a little social experiment right now. It's gonna be hard for some of you people watching online or on TV, but by yourself. But if you're in one of our locations today, I'm gonna ask you to, to do this. And yes, it's gonna be a little uncomfortable, but just humor me for a moment, okay? I want you to stare at the back of the head of the person in front of you. Now, hopefully, it doesn't look like this this dude's head. Ye the way of the Lord, Behold. So hopefully it doesn't look like that. Just dial it in, though. Find the closest back of the head to you, and I just want you to burn laser beams with your eyes into the back of that dome, okay? If you're self-conscious about the back of your head, I'm very sorry. All right, here's my point. This is what happens in most modern churches. People come to church, and they sit in a row, and the most that you see of someone else is the back of their head, week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year. You've never even seen that person's face, and here's the crazy thing, that could be the back of the head of someone who could change your life. It could be the back of the head of somebody who might become a dear friend to you or, or might stand with you through the great hardship of your life or they might pray for you, or they might open doors of possibilities for you that God would use in amazing ways. You never know if all you ever experience in church is rose. Okay, you can stop staring now. But, but, but this leads me to today's big idea. We must be devoted to circles, not just rows. See, Christ's vision for his church is much more than rows and the backs of heads in big auditoriums. We we read it in Acts chapter 2. It's the the church that God blesses and expands and multiplies and grows is a church full of people who have devoted themselves to having a circle-based faith. So here at Grace, our circle-based ministry is what we call life groups. Now, I realize that this is not the only possible way that you can do community with other people. Some of you have formed your own little circles of faith outside of our life group structure. Some of you meet with a handful of friends every couple weeks in a coffee shop. Some of you run your business like a ministry and you build Christian community into the way that, that you and your employees actually do your job. If that's true, there is no guilt in not being part of our life group system. You do your thing. But I just wanna give you a quick primer on why we do life groups at Grace. So I wanna start with the obvious. Jesus used a group strategy. So you know, Jesus could have saved the world alone. He could have started a seminary to train the masses. He could have started a hospital to heal the masses. He could have started a concert hall to hold life-changing events for the masses. He didn't start any of those things. Instead, Jesus started a group. He chose 12 and he devoted himself to those 12 and he laid the foundation so that he could eventually rescue the world. Most of Jesus' ministry was spending time daily with that small group. Jesus experienced fellowship and support from human beings. It's amazing to think about. At the end of his life, he would say to this little group, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. So the second reason is that the early church was made up of groups. So this passage that we're exploring today, it's gonna be evidence of this. But after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, when he turned to his disciples and he told them to start a movement, do you know what, what they did? They started groups. And so the early church was a group of small groups that mainly met in other people's homes. The third reason is that throughout history the church has grown and spread through groups. So St. Francis of Assisi, he used small groups for prayer and training and service. Small groups were used by the Anabaptists, by the Hutterites, by the Friends, by the Lutherans following the Protestant Reformation. The Methodist revival led by John Wesley was primarily based on the use of small groups in people's homes for the purpose of mutual confession and to give encouragement and accountability so people could overcome temptation and develop a Christian lifestyle. Even today, some of the fastest growing churches in the whole world, in Asia, in the Southern Hemisphere, are exploding through the use of a cell group-based model of church. It's why groups are important to us. So now, back to our passage in Acts 2, 42 to 47. There are four things, I think, that happen when you're in a devoted circle, not just a row. Let's call it four habits of people devoted to a community of faith. Here's the first habit, is to devote yourself to the teaching of the scriptures. This was first on the list in in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Now, what do you think the apostles were teaching? Well, they were teaching the word of God. They recognized that before anything else, they had to submit to the centrality and and to, to the authority of the word of God. And for them, the word of God at the time was the Old Testament and it was the teachings of Jesus. So so when you see, in the New Testament, Peter or Philip preaching in the book of Acts, that they are summarizing truths from the Old Testament, and they're adding in the teachings of and about Jesus Christ. And so this early church devoted themselves to total immersion in the teaching of the Word of God through the apostles. Now, this might have looked, it did look, a little different than some of you are imagining in your heads. The the apostles weren't standing at a podium like this and giving a 35-minute lecture. The Jewish learning style was very different than ours. They, they seldom studied Torah alone. Instead, it was a communal activity. And so in a living room, the sounds of dialogue and debate would fill the air as a group wrestled to understand the meaning of each teaching and discussed how it applied to the larger issues of the day in their own lives. Studying and dialoguing and seeking heart after God in the Scriptures was done communally. I think we have much to learn from this. Like the way we're doing this right now, a guy like me stands up here for half hour, lectures about the Bible while people sit in rows and absorb as much as they can. No talking is allowed, minds wander, we dismiss, and everybody says, well, that was nice, and we go have lunch, and, and we go about our week. Inspired for a moment, but with no lasting change. Now, I'm being a little negative. I get the act of preaching is a good way to get information out, but it's not the best way for actual transformation to take place in your life that involves a group, a group who's working it out and breaking it down and making it real and figuring out how how it applies to real life situations that individuals are walking through. And then that same circle of people also gets to be the ones providing encouragement and accountability to do something with that information that we've all learned. It's why I love it when I hear that groups at Grace are following along with the, the group curriculum that we provide over at our Read page to go along with each teaching series. Because just this fire hose of information once on a Sunday doesn't bring about the true life change that we're looking for. What ends up happening is often you'll hear a sermon on, you know, on Sunday about the Sermon on the Mount and then you'll watch a YouTube video about anxiety on Monday and you'll study marriage in your life group on Wednesday and you'll listen to the Bible Project podcast on Thursday and you're so inundated with different messages that you actually don't know where to begin and you can become frustrated in your walk with God. And so, so I ask you, Are you devoted to the scriptures in the context of a group? Do do you live your life for the scriptures? Have the teachings of the Bible made their way into your day-to-day life, into your conversations, into your weekly habits, so that your life is changed by them with the help of the Holy Spirit and the support of a small group of people? I think of Kathy, one of our group leaders who leads a couple of groups, actually. and She messages them every day as they read through the Bible in a year or Keith and Carolyn's group, or Joe and Cindy's group, who who just dig into the scriptures each time they're together. I was talking with Cody recently, who does our version plan back and forth with his dad. Uh, Every Grace series, they go through it together, even though they're separated by miles. Have you devoted yourself to the scriptures? It's one of the habits of a devoted group member. Second, devote yourselves to, to sharing life with other Christians. So so let's look back to the text. They they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and then it says they devoted themselves to what else? The word fellowship. The the word here is koinonia. Some of you know that word. There's a, a program in Erie with the same name. It means communion or community. They intentionally devoted themselves to community life, to fellowship. Now, you know what fellowship has been reduced to in a lot of churches like, after everyone dismisses from the service, they head out into the lobby, they drink some coffee, and they say, hey, Stan, you know, how's business? And Stan says, can't complain. We call that fellowship. <laughs> or, or somebody says, new car, Jim? And Jim's like, used, right? And the moms are at a different table, like, oh, what a cute dress your daughter has on, Amanda. And Amanda's like, yeah, we got it at Target. And then everybody gets up and says, well, nice fellowshipping with you, and they disappear and they come back and do the same drill next week. That is not, what it means to be devoted to fellowship. This passage says they were devoted to fellowship with sincerity of heart, which means the masks come off and people are saying, hey, let's not spend a ton of time on news, weather, and sports, and cars, and let's not get caught up on the kids' dresses. Instead, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what I'm scared about. Here's what God's asking me to do, but I don't have the guts to do it. And so in this text, we see how this true fellowship started to express itself. What this level of communion led to, they started sharing their actual lives. In fact, they were selling their stuff and they were helping people who had need. They weren't just giving out of their excess. They weren't just like, well, I have $100,000 and I'm going to pat you on the head and say, here's 10 bucks, don't spend it all in one place. No, they sold things that they already owned to free up resources to help people in their group. Why? Because they were devoted... To sharing life together. What's incredible is that this competitive, like me first attitude that the disciples had displayed. Remember, they were the ones arguing about who is the greatest and who would sit on Jesus right and left. That's all gone now. Now they're just oozing with generosity to the point that that they're not claiming anything as their own. They're they're liquidating personal property to meet the needs of others. So this goes way beyond, you know, sitting in Dave and Sally's living room every other Thursday night. This is true Christian fellowship. It's not just being polite with each other when we pass in the church lobby. This is genuine love. They shared their lives together. Someone asked me kind of tongue-in-cheek after watching the Jesus Revolution movie, Uh, they said, you know, they they asked if that whole hippie commune thing, you know, where everybody's living together and working together and fixing up old cars for each other and, you know, cooking together and growing parsley together, whatever. They they asked, is is that part of Grace's strategic plan for the future? My answer might have surprised them. I said, it, it should probably look much closer to that than what we're doing right now. And listen, don't pretend that that kind of unity, that selfless unity, was easier for them than it is for us. Just consider the diversity of the group in Acts 2. You know, one of the miracles of Pentecost from just the beginning of this chapter, remember, it was that people started hearing the word of God in their own language. Well, why did they need to? Well, because in 2.5 it says that there were people there from every nation under heaven gathered in Jerusalem. So, so you wanna talk diversity. Uh, lots of these people that were meeting in groups didn't even speak the same language. So, so today in our groups, often people evaluate a life group by what they can get out of it. Like, this group doesn't really work for me. I, I don't have kids and everybody else in the group seems to have kids. Or, you know, they always serve that taco dip and I don't really like taco dip, whatever. <laughs> and I want to be like, yes, but are they speaking the same language? I mean, you want to talk about barriers. The early church had some barriers. See, being part of a group is much more than than what you can get out of it. It's about what you can give away. What what are the needs that you can step in and meet for others? And I get it, generosity within a group is really tricky. So-and-so tried to financially support someone in their life group during a difficult time and they got ripped off or they got taken advantage of. Yes, that happens. So-and-so tried to help financially but it was taken the wrong way and they were offended. Happens. Here's why. Because all attempts at true fellowship and Christian unity and doing life together with others will come under attack. Do do you know that the word for the devil that is used in the scriptures is this word Diablos? And it literally means to throw apart. Satan is a divider by nature. Satan divides. He puts up barriers. That's why all attempts at true Christian unity and fellowship are very difficult. But in groups, we get to break down barriers and division. Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian says it this way. He says, God hates division. God hates favoritism. God hates elitism. God hates it when we put clergy at the top and laity at the bottom. God hates it when we put white Caucasians at the top and minorities below. God hates it when we put the rich at the top and the poor below. God hates it when the beautiful are put at the top and the unbeautiful below. God hates it when when I put people who look like me and dress like me and think like me and talk like me, my taste, my style, my preferences, my culture, my generation at the top and others below. That is not the beauty of the church. That is the strategy of hell. Jesus died to defeat it and the church is the place where the oneness of Trinitarian fellowship has begun this divine conspiracy to reclaim the earth. Which means if you're old and you see some young, tattooed, pierced up, cell phone addict punk running around, go love them. And if you're young and you see some white-haired, technology-impaired old person gimping around the lobby, go love them. If you're thinking, I wonder if I'm the young one or the old one in this scenario, you're the old one. (laughs) I'll just break it to you today. Here's the thing, I'm not naive enough to pretend that just because you join a group, just because you gather in a circle with some faith-forward people, that you're gonna automatically grow, you're automatically gonna be discipled, or you're gonna automatically experience this depth of life. Just the same way, just because you go sit in your garage doesn't mean you're a car. Just because you're in a group, won't automatically bring results. It's what you do in that group that counts. So are you truly seeking to share life with others? Or are you just showing up and checking a box? See, you can't treat your group like a fast food restaurant where you stop in, you get what you need and you'd be on your way. There's more to it than that. They were devoted to fellowship and it showed in everything that they did. I think about Brad and Whitney's group who have a meal every time they, they gather together, including kids. And ever since their kids they have been eating together, they've been starting to invade each other's birthday parties. I think about Jeff's group. They, they served together at Servieri and they laid wreaths at the Soldiers and Sailors' Home on Veterans Day and they did landscaping for a friend of the group who had surgery. They go to brec- breakfast together for various studies. That's immersive, it's sharing life together. And so devote yourself to the scriptures. Devote yourself to sharing life with other Christians. Look at the third habit. Devote yourself to pursuing God's presence. The passage tells us that they were uh, also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's uh, Supper. It's the remembrance of the death of Christ and what he did for their redemption. It also says that, that many wonders and signs were being done when they gathered. The Spirit of God showed up. It was a time of the promised presence of God. And so, yeah, I'm sure that they had fun together. I'm sure they enjoyed meals and social times. But they never gathered without creating some space to pursue the presence of God. See, the difference between a fantasy football league or a book club or a coffee clutch and an actual life group is that in a life group, there's always time spent in pursuing the presence of God. I get concerned when people say, yeah, our life group has become just more of a social group. Like we love, we just love doing stuff together. So we go to ball games and we we have dinner at people's houses and that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you love each other, but if you're gonna be a true life group of this church, a portion of your time together needs to be spent pursuing the presence of God, being in the scriptures, being in prayer, being in worship, sharing testimonies of God's work in your life. But true community is not just a social group. Notice the result of their gathering was this feeling of a sense of awe. So when you're in a group and God shows up, there's a sense of awe and wonder, and it's amazing to experience. You know that Jesus promises to show up when we gather together, don't you? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, 20. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now that promise is specifically for when people are in conflict, but I think it applies to all gatherings. Why? Because he loves groups. He loves community, he knows their strength in numbers, and Jesus, by the way, comes from the original small group, way out in eternity past and eternity future. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mutually edifying, mutually honoring and loving, the perfect community, and so no wonder he's in favor of groups, again. Doing your Christian life in circles with other believers is a mandate. It is not an option. And he says, when you invoke my name in that group, when you read my scriptures, when you pray, when you call upon me, I'm going to be right there in the middle of your gathering. I think about Emily, who's seeing a resurgence of God's presence in her circles, an increase in prophetic gifts. God's speaking through visions and dreams, and she's bringing this increased spiritual awareness into her life group, connecting them to the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the habits of people devoted to a communal faith, uh, you'll devote yourself to the scriptures, to sharing life together, to pursuing God's presence. And here's the fourth and final, is to devote yourself to prayer. You see the last thing going on there in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. They prayed all the time. Someone got in trouble, they prayed. They had a need, they prayed. They were scared, they prayed. One of the greatest examples of this, my favorite, is it happened when Peter escaped from prison over in Acts 12. Do you remember this story? God miraculously rescued him. His chains fell off. The gates of the prison started opening in front of him. And as he walked out on his own into the open air, he was like, okay, I guess I'm free. And so the first place that he goes was to the home where his life group was meeting. The Bible says that he went to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. So so I've always imagined that they were praying at some point for Peter's release from prison and smack dab in the middle of their prayers uh, when they were saying, you know, God, would you please release Peter from prison? Knock, knock, knock. He shows up at the door. And so one of the girls from the prayer meeting goes to the door peeks out the door and instead of letting him in, she closes the door back again, she goes back into the house and she's like, hey, Peter's at the door and as Christians are prone to do, a theological argument breaks out about miracles and angels and meanwhile, Peter's still outside and he's like, hey, I just went all Shawshank Redemption back there and I'm gonna get caught if somebody doesn't come open this door and let me into the house. My point is this, they were devoted to prayer. And because they were, God showed up in these incredible ways. And I'm afraid that we forget in our modern times how dependent we are on God's provision. We forget that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Prayerlessness is the ultimate form of pride because it's telling God, I don't need you. I got this on my own. And so whenever a life group gathers, I urge you to devote yourselves to prayer And this can take all kinds of forms. Sometimes a group can can take prayer requests and then spend some time kind of going around the circle and just praying for each other. I've often encouraged my groups over the years to get on our knees. Posture says something. I'll just do a guided kind of silent prayer time. I'll just call out prompts like take a minute right now in your head and and praise God for one of his character qualities. Now now confess something that you did this week or said uh, or thought that was outside of God's will. Now thank God for three blessings in your life. Now intercede for somebody in your life who is in need and we just go through that together. Sometimes it's powerful just to stop everything in the middle of a lesson or a time of sharing or whatever and just say, hey, let's just stop right now and pray. Somebody just pray about that thing that so-and-so just said. So, so, so life groups are just a great place to learn to pray, especially to learn to pray out loud. There was a guy in one of my groups who, who wouldn't pray out loud, just freaked him out. And there was no pressure and, and we took our time. But one day he, he volunteered to pray. It was a breakthrough for him. He came back to the next meeting after that week, and he said, you know what happened this week? I prayed with my daughter before bed out loud for the first time ever. That's huge. Devoted to prayer. I think about Doris, who leads many groups, but she's led life group leaders and coaches along the way. Every interaction with Doris results in a time of life-giving prayer, and your your spirit is just buoyed, and, and, and you're ready to take the next hill. Or I recently visited Cleveland, Diane and Michelle's group of young adults. I walked in ready to share some thoughts, and they were already way deep in a time of prayer. One of their group members was moving back to Virginia, and here were almost 30, uh, 20-somethings just crying out to God on her behalf. And there were sniffles and, and tears, and I walked in. It was like being hit by a wall of God's presence. They could have just done a little you know, goodbye party with some cake or whatever, but, but that living room became holy ground because the Spirit of God was there all because a, a, a group didn't settle for just being social, didn't settle for just staying on the surface, but they said, we're devoted to prayer. And here's the thing, God will change you. He will heal you when he's invited in. So be devoted to prayer. And, and now we come back again to where we started, the, the result, the ending verse before the rest of the story, the result is that God grows his church as God added to their number those who were being saved. This devoted community was so attractive to the outside world that that you couldn't keep people away. You see, devoted groups of believers generate a kind of magnetic force of attraction in a world that is utterly deprived of a true sense of family. How strong would a church be if everyone in it were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of God's word, to fellowship, to the presence of God, And to prayer. Jesus had a vision in his great commission for radical expansion. And he accomplished it, listen, in a counterintuitive way. Here's how he accomplished it. His church was intensely and authentically devoted to community and each other. A lot of you are devoted to a lot of things. Devoted to your family, that's good. You're devoted to being successful at work, and that's good. You're devoted to working out and living a healthy lifestyle, and that's good. If you're gonna be devoted to to being more like Jesus, you have to devote yourself to a circle and not just a row. Spiritual growth happens best in circles. So so imagine a church with me where everybody crosses that line and says, you know what, enough peeking over the fence, enough drifting through life, enough wandering here and there, enough half-hearted commitment. I'm gonna take responsibility for my life. I'm going to continually devote myself, ferociously dedicate myself to growing up in my faith, to maximizing my potential as a Christian. And it's not going to happen alone. It's going to happen in a group. Whether you're a man or woman, single or a couple, young or old. I mean, if you're in 6th to 12th grade, we're absolutely calling you to get in a group as well. And so as today's next step, I again direct your attention to our website over at whoisgrace.com lifegroups. You can also scan a QR code that's on the prayer card that maybe you received last week, or you can find it on the screen or at the table in the lobby at one of our locations. But my challenge today is twofold. For some of you, the call is to join a life group. There are all kinds of groups that meet all over our region every day of the week. And for some of you, the challenge is to lead a life group. Like for you, it's time to step up. We'd love to see at least 20 new groups start during this season, which means we need 20 more leaders. (laughs) So we have a boot camp training that we'll take you through, but 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 for some of you it's time to step up. My prayer for us as a church, as a people, is that we would be devoted to circles and not just rows, because that's where life transformation happens. For many of you, it's time to join a group or lead a group. Love you guys.